Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with the brothers Amar. Hi, Akil. Hi, Andy. Hi, Vic. Vic is back with us again today. Vic Amar, the dean and professor at the uh, University of uh, Illinois School of Law. Welcome back. Thank you. And uh, again, Vic is joining us because we have more to say about the Senate, about the confirmation hearings. Um, And now that uh, Judge Jackson has been confirmed, uh, I I wonder, do we call her Justice Jackson yet or not until she gets her commission? I wouldn't call her until she gets a commission, personally. Okay, so Judge Jackson it is for today. No disrespect intended. Just uh, trying to... Maybe there's a term, justice designate. I don't know whether you can make such a term up. You definitely can make such a term up. Whether <laughs> whether it has legitimacy is another matter. And so- since you asked, Andy, from a strict point of view, the Constitution refers to the members of the Supreme Court as judges. Um, and so it's no actually disrespect even to call a Supreme Court um, officer judge. The word justice derives from the first Judiciary Act, the Judiciary Act of 1789, passed in September of 1789, and our practice of distinguishing between justices and judges really comes from that. The Constitution does twice refer to a chief justice, or at least once. Um, The chief justice presides at presidential impeachment trials under the terms of the Constitution, but but actually, the Constitution says the judges, both of the Supreme and inferior courts, shall have life tenure. And in fact, of course, Supreme Court justices from day one have ridden circuit. And they've not just ridden circuit on their own. They've ridden circuit on panels sitting lower federal court judges. Um, so, And they've never done that, for example, with, with state judges. So um, um, my very first article, which I, I wrote as a third-year law student and had published during the year that I clerked for then-judge, now-Justice uh, Breyer, made a big point that there was a parity, not a parody, but a parity among our, uh, within Article Three that every Article Three officer basically is nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate, has um, tenure for good behavior, uh, undiminishable salary, um, is impeachable for for misconduct. And these things are true, not just of um, everyone on the Supreme Court, but they're true of every um, Article Three officer, every, um, Article Three judge, all, all the judges on in what are, what's called by the Constitution, a court's inferior to the Supreme Court. So they're all judges from a certain um, a constitutional point of view. But I, I will add, though, Akhil, that you know the various of the justices uh, get uh, are prickly, and they don't fully they do. uh, accept that. Uh, William Rehnquist, for example, yes. I think uh, often corrected advocates. Yes. Uh, but right. we know that the, the Supreme Court and, and these uh, modern Supreme Court justices are very Supreme Court centric, so that doesn't shock. Right. And, and, and he thought he was very special, and he had a bit of a sense of humor too. Um, as chief, he had actually a special robe designed with special chevrons um, for the chief. Okay, but remember, actually, chief justice is a, a phrase in the Constitution. So. Yes, although I think he objected to being called Judge Rehnquist when he was an associate justice as well. I think I think, I, I think he did. Do uh, so. Two questions on that. One. Um, you talk about the parity. Um, are the salaries the same on the different courts? 
Uh, no, but they're undiminishable. Um, yeah. And actually, the salary of the chief is a little bit more than of the, the, the associates. Um, so um, just to repeat, uh, all of, nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate, uh, uh, good behavior slash life tenure, uh, an undiminishable salary, but they may be set at, at, at different levels at, at the beginning, and impeachable for, and removable um, for um, uh, high crimes and misdemeanors. None of those things is true of any state judge. All of those things are true of every federal judicial officer. So just to finish my, those the, the questions on this, I know this is really esoteric, but I, f- I find it interesting. Um, okay, so they have the same salary. Now, when they ride circuit or, or uh, where they refer to as judge then, uh, as opposed to justice when they sit on the court? Well, again, um, the first Judiciary Act, which provided for circuit writing, called them justices. Well, but even now, uh, yes, uh, it's a provi- it, called for, for, it called them justices in the context of discussing their circuit writing? Um, I can't remember this, the details, but they were referred to as circuit mm-hmm. justices. Well, to the extent, though, that certain retired justices, right. like Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, have sat on, uh, on court of appeals cases post-Supreme Court retirement, um, I don't know whether uh, in those matters that uh, she, she's called judge or, or, or justice. And does she get paid to do that? Or did she get paid to do that? Well, her, her salary, one of the nice things about being a, an Article Three judge is even after you retire from the bench, um, uh, that is take uh, senior status, as long as you don't uh, practice law and want to leave the judiciary altogether, you get paid your salary even after you're no longer an active member of the, the judiciary. So essentially your pension, if it will, if you will, is, is, is your salary. And the reason for that, or a reason for that, is it, I think Congress doesn't want to create an incentive for federal judges who have to be impeached to remove them from the bench to stay past their, their prime. Uh, if, you, if you sense you're starting to you know, slip a little bit, uh, and you'd like to uh, uh, dial back, but you don't want to give up your salary, you have a bit of a conflict of interest there. This uh, uh, tries to dissolve that. Um, and the question of, of title, again, Andy was in, so we've been, we've been re- uh, reacting, but at the founding, um, John Adams in particular was very focused on on honorifics and, and titles, and he didn't think um, that just the word president was good enough. And it's complicated also because he is the presiding officer of the Senate as um, vice president of the, of the United States. And um, so uh, the original Senate in 1789 actually proposed um, a, a different uh, title for um, the, the chief executive officer. They proposed his highness, the president of the United States of America and protector of their liberties, um, and uh, they eventually settled for the much um, simpler and more Republican Mr. President. And, of course, John Adams was the victim of honorifics as well, as he was known in some circles as his rotundity. Um, okay, so back to the hearings, um, even though they've concluded. We, we played some clips for you last time and got into discussions about them, and I think you know we didn't play all of them. We have more we're going to play today, and this reflects the purpose of playing them in the first place, which is that they give us grist for our mill of, of discussion. So it's not so much a matter of, well, the hearing's over while you're playing the clip, but rather there's still other things that we haven't discussed that came up, and, and uh, that's why we're playing them for you today. Yeah, we're using this as an opportunity to have a, 
uh, a broader constitutional conversation about various constitutional issues that that came up um, um, sometimes en passant in the hearings. It's just this is a podcast about serious constitutional stuff. We've already begun to tell our, our audience some, some interesting little d- um, details about the structure of Article 3 and, and, and even early debates about the presidency and, and the title. So that's the sort of thing that you're going to get in, in this podcast. If you're a, a new um, listener, we're going to try to connect things that are in the headlines to, to enduring things about the Constitution in general. Correct. And one of the themes that, of the hearings, I think, there was some back and forth about uh, sentencing guidelines, that sort of thing, which I didn't, which we're going to stay away, away from for the most part. We'll have a little bit of uh, Josh Hawley-isms uh, later. But, um, you know, a theme of unenumerated rights, fundamental rights, enumerated rights, uh, and relating all this to, as we began to last time, substantive due process questions, equal protection. Okay. So a lot of this was implied in the questions, and I think that, um, you know, there were somewhat blunt and inelegant ways of approaching it, and perhaps somewhat more uh, nuanced. Um, So let's start with a relatively blunt one, Um, and here is a quote from uh, Senator Blackburn um, questioning Judge Jackson. But I want to go to you on something you said when you were in private practice. Uh, you made your views on pro-life and the pro-life movement very clear. And in fact, you attacked pro-life women. And this was in a brief that you wrote. You described them, and I'm quoting, hostile, noisy crowd of in-your-face protesters, end quote. And you advocated against these women's First Amendment right to express their sincerely held views regarding the sanctity of each individual life. And I'm a pro-life woman. 79% of the American women support restrictions of some type on abortion. And so I find it incredibly concerning that someone who is nominated to a position with life tenure on the Supreme Court holds such a hostile view toward a view that is held as a mainstream belief that every life is worth protecting. So how do you justify that incendiary rhetoric against pro-life women. Thank you, Senator. The brief that you're referring to um, was a brief that I filed on behalf of clients who were clients of my law firm. This Mm -hmm. is in, I believe, goodness, 1999 or 2000, maybe 2000 or 2001. Yeah. Um, I was an associate at a law firm, and I had uh, appellate experience because I had just finished my Supreme Court law clerk position. Um, And in the context of my law firm, um, I was asked to work on a brief uh, concerning a buffer zone issue Mm -hmm. in 
Massachusetts at the time, um, there were laws protecting uh, women who wanted to enter clinics, and there was a, a First Amendment question about uh, the degree to which there had to be room around them uh, to enter the clinic. Right. And I, I understand all of that. I'm asking about the rhetoric. Um, Senator, I drafted a brief along with okay. the partners in my law firm who reviewed it, and we filed it on behalf of our client. Okay. In 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 to advance our clients' arguments that they wanted to make okay. in the case. Let me ask you this. When you go to church and knowing there are pro-life women there, do you look at them thinking of them in that way, that they're noisy, hostile, in your face? Do, do you think of them? Do you think of pro-life women like me that way? Senator, that was a statement in a brief made okay. uh, an argument for my client. It's not the way that I think of or okay. characterize people. All right. Thank you for the clarification on, on that. Because I think even zealous advocacy doesn't allow that type of uh, rhetoric on a free speech issue. You know, Roe v. Wade, let's talk a little bit about that. It's come up a uh, touch today. Uh, in my opinion, that was an awful act of judicial activism and has cost the lives of over 63 million unborn children. And nearly 50 years later, this shameful ruling remains binding precedent, but the battle is being fought in the courts. And as you know, and as we discussed when we visited, the Supreme Court is reconsidering whether the Constitution protects the right to an abortion in Dobbs. And if you're confirmed, you will be in a position to apply the court's decision in Dobbs, whatever that decision is going to be. And you've talked about following precedent and what the court decides. So do you commit to respecting the court's decision if it rules that Roe was wrongly decided and that the issue of abortion should be sent back to the states? Senator, whatever the Supreme Court decides in Dobbs will be the precedent of the Supreme Court. It will be uh, worthy of respect in the sense that it is the precedent and um, I commit to treating it as I would any other precedent of the There's Supreme Court. There's one other thing, one of the central issues and the Dobbs case is about the con whether the Constitution protects the right to an abortion. So let's talk about that. Can you explain to me on a constitutional basis the court's decision in Roe and where is abortion protected in the Constitution? Senator, um Abortion is a right that the Supreme Court has recognized um, in the, um, is one of the kinds of rights that is an unenumerated. Okay. Um, it is in that same category of rights that uh, the Supreme Court has recognized. Uh, but with, the text of the Constitution does not mention abortion. That is true. That yeah. is true. That is correct. 
So you agree that the Constitution does not mention the right to an abortion, and yet, through one of the most brazen acts of judicial activism, our Supreme Court created the right through Roe v. Wade. This is why Americans, this is why so many women that I've talked to are really concerned about who sits on the federal bench. Okay, so there are really three things in that clip. Um, and in the first part, she's talking about uh, a brief that, uh, that Judge Jackson wrote while she was an associate at a, at a firm uh, about uh, apparently people that were getting too close to an abortion uh, yeah, center or something. So uh, any comments on that? Well, I, I can jump in. Uh, uh, first of all, you know, she, she emphasized a few times that she was representing clients. Again, going back to something Akhil and I talked about in a previous podcast, that uh, when you, lawyers are, are role players. And when you're uh, an advocate, that's different than when you're an academic, that's different than when you're a judge. She indeed went further and pointed out that she was an associate in the law firm, the implication being that she wasn't calling the shots. She said, I drafted a brief and, and the partners uh, uh, you know, looked at it. And so it was kind of not even clear where this language came from. I wasn't so uh, miffed by the, the words that she used um, as being intemperate. She, if I remember right, it, she, the brief described uh, this particular group of pro-life women, not all pro-life women, but the pro-life women who were protesting outside the abortion clinics as protesters. Well, I mean, that's neutral. They're protesters. Uh, noisy, noisy, maybe she could have said loud, but noisy is not an inherently uh, demeaning term, uh, and in your face. Uh, and I don't know what uh, what you use as a synonym for in your face to describe protesters are trying to get really close. I mean, maybe you could invoke Seinfeld's close-talking um, uh, metaphor. But, but uh, these were just factual statements. And again, if you're an advocate and you're trying to set the mood for the judges to understand what the scene is like, because you're advocating for the rights of women who need to get in and out of the clinic for their medical services, this didn't strike me as particularly uh, mean-spirited or improper characterizations of, of the protests. And therefore, um, Akil now, uh, you just heard from Vic, that's for the audience, I don't think she gave the best possible answer. She allowed a misimpression to be created that that was her view of all pro-life women rather than the particular people at issue in a, in a dispute. And that was easy and obvious, and she actually um, didn't nail it. She's not a, an oral advocate par excellence in the tradition, let's say, of John Roberts or Neil Katyal. Or Elena Kagan. <clears throat> um, uh, well, right. She also missed the easy answer saying, no, I don't think about the women in my church that way. And yes, some of them are pro-life. Some of my best friends are pro-life and, and I get it. So I actually think she missed an opportunity there and allowed the senator to actually uh, paint her in a, um, uh, a more um, unflattering light. Final point on the analytic issues about where free speech um, meets abortion, and and particularly in in abortion clinics. Um, now, the more she talks about abortion, maybe the worse off it is for for her in general. And so, just move on. Um, but she could have said, or I, I will say, <clears throat> that even if you're emphatically pro life, 
Um, and you do believe that um, uh, innocent, unborn human life is absolutely sacred. Um, it is the case that some of the people who are going to quote abortion clinics and all the rest are going actually because these are desperately wanted pregnancies that are actually in the process of, of um, miscarriage or uh, other medical mishap. And Andy, um, I don't want to out you too much, but you have to, you, know, you just had major surgery recently and you're going to have to go and, and, and get sort of, you know, a, a follow-up consultation later today. And, and when you're going to a, a hospital or a clinic um, to get medical treatment, um, sometimes, you know, something that's not remotely elective and, and not remotely, you know, easy or comfortable for you. you, you're, you're in physical distress, you might be in emotional distress, emotional anguish. And not all the protesters actually understand that some of the women that they're confronting, and yes, they sometimes are in their face, are actually on their side, on, on the pro-life issue even. Um, um, but I'm not going to explain that you know, to a stranger as I'm just trying to get to a, a medical care provider. Um, so again, she could have said all of that. Um, maybe it, it, it would have been a mistake just because you know, she'd be digging a hole deeper for herself. But these medical clinic cases uh, involve some real complexities here including people who desperately wanted to be um, pregnant and, and, and may very well be that no matter what they do, they're going to lose this one, but they're hoping they can lose this pregnancy in a way that will enable them to have another one and, and give birth to an innocent, sacred human being. And of course, yes, it's true, I'm going to the doctor today, but I also spent a lot of years as a physician, and so I'm sensitive to it from that point of view. And one of the things, some of the things you were just describing uh, Akil, I would put under the category of privacy. You know, they don't know why you're there. You know, it's in, and it's in many ways none of their business. You know, and uh, and you're not going to walk into the to, to the hospital and pass some protest and say this is why I'm going to the hospital because you know <laughs> it, it, you have no obligation to do that so to to a perfect stranger. So that that's where you know questions of privacy. This may not be a constitutional and, 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 argument, but it certainly no, is. No, a, no, it is. It's a human argument, and she, and and the senator was making a human argument, and and and, and not just you know a, a stranger, but a stranger who's yelling at you. Right. So that was the first part of the of the of the club. Then she gets uh, into say, okay, let's talk about Roe v. Wade. And then first, she, and she really has two points. One, she talks about the question of uh, Dobbs and whether it will be a, uh, considered a precedent based on uh, you know after after the ruling is. Given. Uh, actually, Andy, I, I want to say one more thing, just because I don't say enough to my brother how much I love him, and I want to tell a story that's about him. Um, uh, and I'll embarrass him a little bit, but I'm I'm so very proud of him. So um, my wife and I have a, a a son, and he's named for my two brothers. One brother is Vikram David. The other is uh, Arun Paul. Our son is Vikram Paul. He also has um, my wife's initials. She's Vanita Parkash. And um, and it took a long time for Vic to come, and we wanted him for a very long time. And you know, we went through all sorts of things. This is this is deep and personal um, for me. Just you know, s uh, sympathizing with women um, who go through all sorts of things, and you don't have to explain that to a stranger who's who's yelling in your face. But we named him for my brothers because I'm so proud of my brothers. And when he finally was born, I called our dad up. He's still around. Our dad. Um, it was two o'clock in the morning, California time. And he, he, you know, picked up the phone and I said, dad, 
the eagle has landed. You know, that's how it felt. It felt like, you know, the moon, you know, a shot that it had taken a long time for us to get there. And with a lot of help, you know, from all my family members and, 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 and others as well. So, so, uh, Marsha Blackburn was sort of saying something in a human register that I actually think a lot of people will resonate with. I don't think actually um, that Judge Jackson did as great a job as is possible to imagine, you know, responding the same register, but maybe she just didn't want to go there in any way, shape or form. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess your point is that, you know, was in a way, wasn't really a legal question, but rather a, a human one that she could have responded with a very human answer. Uh, about some of her human clients, you know, and yeah. Yeah. And she partially yeah. did, but not fully, you know, and, 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 you know, personalizing some of their uh, plights, which actually a good uh, um, advocate can do and actually going out of the way to say, actually the people in, I, there are people in my church who are very strongly pro-life and um, I, I don't think of them as noisy. I deeply, you know, love and respect them. That, that would have been, I think a better answer. You know, on this podcast, we've talked about different types of constitutional arguments, structural, you know, textual, you know, so forth. Now you're talking about different types of oral arguments um, yes. that, that you can bring in different components to, to an oral argument um, in, in much the same way. Okay. So again, part two of this answer then, or this question and answer colloquy had to do with, uh, with the question of abortion uh, jurisprudence as precedent. So we have the Dobbs case coming up, and she asked her, uh, will you accept it as binding precedent? And, of course, she left out the word binding in her response and said that she would consider it a precedent that was... Well, the- indeed, indeed, this is it. She, she uh, used the C word. She says, I commit mm-hmm. to respecting it. And that's the kind of commitment that I think is okay um, uh, in the same way that you can commit to following the Constitution when you take an oath to it. Uh, I, 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 I'm, Vic, I'm even stricter. I don't think you should commit to anything except, you know, um, to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution itself. So I actually don't even like committing to, you know, precedent or committing to text. Um, well, again, she committed, she committed to treating it as precedent the way right, she but, but, treat but, I, I, I'd be even stricter than you, Vic. I, yeah, I wouldn't probably. even do that. I would say the only thing that I can promise is that I will take my oath of office, you know, seriously. And and it, it, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. That's what I will commit to, to following the Constitution, laws, and treaties of the United States at the supreme law of the land. I will commit to, to anything other than that. And one other thing, just that, that we'll get into this more, the hypothetical was, of course, not about how she would rule in Dobbs, but how she um, – would respond to Dobbs because, of course, the Dobbs case is being decided right now, and she won't be a decision maker. We'll talk about this a little bit more later on because Justice Breyer still sits that the oral argument happened before. The court right now is in the process of of, um, writing and refining opinions. They'll be announced before the end of the term, and Breyer's resignation isn't going to be effective until the end of the term. So one other really interesting little thing about that is she wasn't being asked how she would rule in Dobbs because she's not presumably going to be ruling in Dobbs, but how she would react to Dobbs once it came, comes down. Yeah, she could I mean, have just said, I, I, I expect to treat it this way, or right. this is how I treat precedents in general, yes. and this would probably fall right. in that category, you know, something right. like that. And, and but I, I shouldn't make any promise at all. That's what she could have said if she, had, if she took Vic's ideas really, really seriously, Vic's and mine. Um, uh, we say basically no promises. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, this is because it was such a non-committal commitment. I'm not irked by it. But it is interesting to go back to uh, an earlier uh, question about whether she was going to recuse herself in the Harvard uh, um, uh, uh, racial discrimination case. And there, you you recall, she said, "That's my plan." Mm -hmm. Um, And and maybe "plan" wouldn't be the right word here. I think, as Andy suggested, she could have said, "Well, you know, I I take precedent seriously." Uh, and uh, and Dobbs would be president uh, at that point. Mm-hmm. Which is but, a, a tantamount to what she said. And, and she's not unique. No nominee has ever basically said the line is between promises and predictions, okay, or expect or or, uh, uh, or promises and plans, or promises and, and expectations, or um, uh, promises and my my current understanding or something. Now, if you take that strict line, then any kind of promise starts to actually put you on a slippery slope other than I promise to follow the constitution, which is the legal. Um, at, at, at least promises that, uh, that regard particular cases. I mean, she could promise to, to work hard. She could promise to, uh, you know, uh, uh, treat her clerks well, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, and, and remember on particular cases, we, as, since you mentioned the Harvard case, that even a promise to recuse as opposed to how you're going to decide on the merits this way or that way is problematic. Um, and here's the reason that no nominee has taken the So she didn't, but no nominee has because the flip side is once you take that position, it's fair game to be asked all these other specific questions about what do you think about this issue or that one or this case or that one? How would you have... Um, you know, thought about Roe versus Wade or Brown versus Board of Education or Griswold versus Connecticut or what have you. Right. And then they can say, well, and if you say, well, I can't say, oh, well, but what about you promised this? You know, now why, why, what's the difference? You know, and then yeah, you, indeed, you have to indeed, answer be, that. Be, be, right. Right. Before, before nominees uh, clammed up altogether the way they have in the last handful of years, in the early 2000s, the nominees would be selective. They would answer some questions and not others. Um, and the Senate wasn't skilled enough to kind of call them on that and point out their hypocrisy. But I think nominees have gotten ever more sophisticated about uh, avoiding answers of any kind, um, in part because, you know, no, so few people cross uh, the aisle, uh, right. although this time there were three. And it's just all about whether you have the votes. You know, Akhil, you, you made a, a point in an earlier episode about that uh, Sonia Sotomayor talked about uh, uh, Heller and uh, – and then later when uh, McDonald came up, she, you know, didn't seem to really uh, dissent in a way that was consistent with her, her statements and her confirmation here. Is there anything, any episode of a particularly notorious answer that was given uh, that, uh, you know, later came back to, to look, look ridiculous? Well, yes, but not in a Supreme Court context, and I'll tell you about that in just a minute. But senators actually became become skilled at, at this, so they'll say, "Well, um, do you have a view on Marbury versus Madison and judicial review?" And you see, if you answer that, then the minute you answer anything, this is your earlier point, um, uh, Andy. Then they're going to say, "Well, you answered my Marbury question. You know, why won't you answer my Brown question? Because mm-hmm. you think Marbury is, you know, more obvious than Brown. Okay, so now you answer the Marbury question." Of course, it's rightly decided. And the Brown versus Board of Education question, of course, it's rightly decided. Okay, well, then what about Griswold? <clears throat> and then you either answer it or don't. And now you have to say there's a line between Brown and Griswold or not. And now you answer the Griswold question. Imagine, so you say, okay, Marbury's rightly decided, obviously. 
And Brown versus Board of Education is rightly decided, obviously. And Griswold versus Connecticut is rightly decided, obviously. And now you won't answer the, the row question. So that's, you know, the peril of answering any of those. Now, Vic, and I think you should answer all those as long as you don't make a promise. It's interesting. It's interesting. Maybe some of the senators do this. This is Vic. Uh, uh, you mentioned a bunch of cases like Marbury and Brown, et cetera, and Griswold, about which there's broad consensus that they are, are, are valid. I, I don't remember too many senators asking about Korematsu or Dred Scott um, uh, or, or Lochner um, and getting uh, justices to answer that they disagree with those cases. But again, once you agree or disagree with what the court did in a past case, uh, then that opens the door. The most famous um, confirmation process answer that really came back to bite um, the um, nominee who succeeded in winning confirmation was not in the Supreme Court context. And it involves actually the story, uh, Andy, our our, our, our good friend, um, Bob Woodward, who's been on the podcast. It involves Gerald Ford, who was nominated to fill uh, the vice vice presidential vacancy under the 25th Amendment, uh, Spiro Agnew had resigned in uh, disgrace because he was being um, uh, he pleaded guilty to actually having committed crimes uh, um, in um, office uh, in uh, uh, in state office in Maryland. He was the governor of Maryland before he was um, vice president. So now there's a vacancy in the vice presidency. Now, for 40 years in American history, we've had vacancies in the vice presidency. And until the recent period, there was no way of filling it. So if the vice president died or resigned. Or if um, the president dies or resigns and the vice president moves up, for most of American history, there was just, you know, there was no spare tire. Um, um, you, uh, but, and by the way, that, that is, is, is why, uh, you know, uh, after uh, Lincoln died and Andrew Johnson became president and was impeached and came within a vote of being convicted in the Senate, um, uh, the, there was so much drama because there was uh, uh, no current vice president who would have succeeded him, but rather uh, at the time, the president pro tem of the Senate, who had an obvious conflict of interest in the impeachment trial. Benjamin Franklin Wade, Ben Wade. After Kennedy's assassination, the Constitution was amended. John Kennedy's assassination. The Constitution was amended to provide for the filling of a vice presidential vacancy. It's not the ordinary confirmation process of just the Senate being involved, but actually a special one, the House and the Senate, And Ford, as a nominee, was asked whether he would ever pardon Richard Nixon if Nixon were to resign and he were to become president. The back, the implication of the context of the question was, would you kind of ever make a a, a deal in which he'll step down and you'll step up and and in exchange, quid pro quo, sort of um, give him a pardon. Um, Ford just, he answered it and he said, I don't think the American people would stand for it. Um, and then later on, uh, he, he gets confirmed. Um, Nixon, Nixon does eventually step down. He, he eventually does step up. And shortly thereafter, he pardons Richard Nixon. And it looks very stinky. And of course, Bob Woodward, I think even maybe on this podcast, told the story of how when that happened, Carl Bernstein calls him up. I think it's a Sunday morning. And he picks up the phone. And he says, Bernstein says, have you heard the news? And Woodward said, what news? I've, I've been sleeping. And Bernstein said, the son of a bitch pardoned the son of a bitch. And he knew immediately what, what had happened. And Woodward um, tells has told us the story, and I think uh, um, uh, uh, both on this podcast and off, about how he initially thought that was corrupt, 
Um, but he now doesn't think so at all. He's changed his mind and he's interviewed Ford many times over the years. And if you, even if you thought Ford um, made a mistake in pardoning Richard Nixon, um, he, uh, Woodward believes, as do I, that um, it, was, it was not stinky, it was not corrupt, it was not by prearrangement, some quid pro quo plan. But it's a reminder of the awkwardness of making a promise. And technically Ford didn't make a promise. He, he, made, said, a, he made a statement and maybe yes. the statement turned out to be right because maybe that's why he lost to Jimmy Carter in 76. He did when he lost by just as, you know, an inch. And when you lose by an inch, just sort of everything is, is the reason you lose. He said, I don't think the American people would stand for, it. but that's the most famous uh, thing that comes to mind um, about a, a, a statement kind of coming back to, to haunt a nominee who succeeded, who, who actually made it through. Mm-hmm. Of course, um, Bork answered all sorts of questions and his answers, while candid and truthful, um, came back to haunt him because he, he didn't get confirmed. Right. And now on to the third part of the clip where she uh, asks her about um, whether or not abortion, the word abortion or the term abortion appears in the Constitution. And this is what I was uh, alluding to originally when, uh, when I introduced the clip as a whole, was the question of, uh, of rights. So, your comments. So, I'll just jump in with a, a few comments. Akhil and I, as well, um, take text very seriously. Akhil is, is very text-oriented. But I think he would agree with me. He can he can tell me if he doesn't. Um, that the text, while important, um, is not everything in the Constitution. There's lots of things in the Constitution that have to be teased out of a very small number of words. So let me just give you just a few examples. Um, you know, if if you were a textual stickler, uh, then you know maybe the Air Force would be a problem because there's no mention of of, of provision of for Congress to create an Air Force because planes weren't around at the time. Uh, uh, in McCulloch versus Maryland, where the court is looking not at, at rights, but at congressional powers, uh, Chief Justice Marshall s- says the Constitution cannot include specific language on everything Congress has the power to do, because then it would look more like a telephone book. He didn't say telephone book. He would say he said it would take on the prolixity of a code. And it, and it has to be brief, so it's understandable to the, the very people uh, who make the Constitution uh, whole. Um, and, and just a final point, conservatives um, have a lot of uh, uh, doctrines that they support that are not deeply textually grounded. For example, uh, state sovereign immunity um, uh, is not in the text of the 11th Amendment or anywhere else in the Constitution, and yet and yet, a lot of the, the same folks that align with uh, Senator Blackburn have no problem. The Ninth Amendment, of course, speaks to the existence of unenumerated rights, Akil can tell you a little bit more about how he thinks the Ninth Amendment should apply. Uh, But the the concept, the the idea that every right has to be mentioned in terms in the Constitution, I'm not sure I'm on board with that. So I agree with what Vic said. Um, uh, There are both implied powers um, and implied rights. um, uh, And on powers, or at least implied means, um, uh, Vic mentioned that the Constitution, for example, explicitly says Congress has power to create an army and uh, a Navy doesn't say anything about Air Force. And Vic said, well, they weren't thinking about planes at the time. He's right. There weren't planes. But in fact, you here's an interesting little thing. Um, uh, the French had already begun to experiment with hot air balloons and George Washington was very, as a general, was very interested in possible military 
uses of hot air balloons. Just imagine that you could actually get, you know, launch a balloon in a battle, you know, um, um, and to, to get a different um, view of, of, of the field and then using semaphore or something like that, coded signals um, to relay that kind of information to the troops on the ground. That, you know, Washington was really interesting and clever. So, so it was even possible that they could have foreseen air power of, of certain sorts, but they didn't say an air force. Um, uh, but the obvious point is you have to read the Constitution holistically, its purposes. They, um, it, it was all about common defense. And, and they mentioned armies and navies because they wanted to treat armies and navies differently. Armies had to be reauthorized every two years, navies not, for the reason that armies were seen as more threatening to liberty domestically. They can, they can threaten people in the hinterlands, um, and navies can't. And just think about Ukraine right now. The coastlines of Ukraine are more vulnerable uh, to pounding uh, from the Black Sea um, than the, the deep hinterlands. Um, so the, the Marines raise a particularly interesting question. Um, should they be governed by the Army rules? It has to be reauthorized every two years, or the Navy rules? You can have a standing appropriation. That issue actually arose in the Iraq war, you see, because um, Marines actually partake of both um, land and naval power. Oh, now you have to go back just looking at this word or that one. You have to see the larger context, read the Constitution holistically. That's true when it comes to powers. That's also true when it comes to rights. The Ninth Amendment, Vic properly said, goes out of its way to say not all rights are enumerated, are textualized, are listed. The question then becomes, well, where do you find the ones that aren't and, 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 and who enforces them and how? Um, Vic is right that I've written a fair amount about that and probably most significantly in my book, America's Unwritten Constitution, and I identify various sources. Let me just quickly go through three or four. She didn't say any of this, you see. She's not a constitutional theorist the way, you know, I fancy my, my, myself. And again, it might have just been silly, even if she were a constitutional theorist, to answer the questions Bork did, and, and that didn't exactly help them. But but here are sources of unenumerated rights, since this is what you're really asking. And we're using the confirmation hearings as an opportunity to talk about deep questions of constitutional law. I think, Andy, that's what most interests you is not just the confirmation process, but but the deepest questions of constitutional law. And and one of them came up. I agree. Um, but first, you know, first, I would say that the, the most important thing is to say that that there are unenumerated rights, yes. that the Constitution yes. makes it clear that there are, so that, so that for the, the implication of the question that, that uh, Senator Blackburn asked was that there aren't any. You know, that the notion that, you know, that 62 million fetuses are dead because the Supreme Court made something up out of whole cloth and that was a comp- entirely illegitimate process you know, in and of itself is is wrong, that argument. Now, well, hold on. now you can I, say sure. that they didn't, they shouldn't have done it or they did it wrong, you know, yeah, or something yeah, so, like that. So, but. so I, I, I'm not sure. And I, so I, I'm going to defend unenumerated rights, but I'm not going to defend Roe. I'm um, not, that's what, I'm not, it's not my, uh, okay. I'm not saying so, that I'm saying that, that, that the fact that it's not enumerated is not in and of itself the end of the discussion. Decisive. And here's what she could have said but didn't on that. Okay. So just reminding everyone of the text of the Constitution since, since Vic invoked the Ninth Amendment, um, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So you're right, Andy. The Constitution seems to presuppose that there are rights, they're retained by the people, and they might not all be enumerated, that is, textualized. And the 14th Amendment 
could have tried to list all the rights the no state shall abridge, but it didn't. It said in similarly open-ended language, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge any of the, you know, the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States without comprehensively itemizing or um, enumerating or, or listing them. So where do we find Before you go on with that, you, you were just talking about McCulloch versus Maryland and John Marshall's, you know, opinion and talking about how, you know, the necessary and proper clause, but not only that, but the Constitution itself makes it clear that there are powers beyond those that are specifically listed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, The Ninth Amendment it's, it's actually, like in the case of rights, is even more obvious because they, they, they don't actually say that about powers. You're, you're, he reads it into it. Uh, uh, he says, we must never forget it is a constitution we are expounding. But, mm-hmm. but in the case of rights, it's even more obvious because they explicitly say so. You could say the necessary and proper clause is as to implied powers, what the Ninth Amendment is as to implied rights. But here's the, the big point, and I'm agreeing with you, Andy. Um, let's look at John Marshall, and, and, and I'm agreeing with Vic. Let's look at McCulloch. Here's a first source reading the Constitution as a whole, okay? Um, so saying, well, why did they say armies and navies and not air force? Vic is right, they weren't really thinking, especially about air forces. There weren't air forces around, and there isn't a clause that says you can't have an air force. Um, and in fact, truthfully, um, uh, balloons are often helping infantry um, in, in various ways, or, or you know, air power supporting um, um, infantry. Um, so the only, in, the really deep question is, should your air force have to be reauthorized every two years, like an army, or can there be a standing appropriation for it, like a navy? I would take the position it needs to be reauthorized every two years because it th- poses some of the same threats to the 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 uh, the, the hinterland, the the interior um, uh, that an army does, and see, a navy is much less threatening. Um, because it can only threaten the coastline. Okay, so that's the interesting question about Air Force. Like Marines, I would treat them both um, as like Army because I want to be somewhat strict. Congress can create an Air Force. Congress can create Marines, but let's treat them as adjuncts to the, the Army. So now we're reading the Constitution holistically. We're understanding, actually, truthfully, our Constitution was all about armies versus navies and trying to create a force structure akin to Britain's. The reason that um, Americans were free for the first 150 years is there's no standing army in peacetime. Um, and Americans wanted to be like Britain. Britain was an island nation. An island nation doesn't need an army to defend itself very much against invasion. And you're, you're, you're um, less vulnerable um, to attack. That's what we're seeing right now in Ukraine. That's what the, you know, the people of Moldova or Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia are much more vulnerable than the people in Britain. Um, cause, uh, and, and even, you know, um, uh, Poland, even Germany, they, they, you know, they, they can be invaded directly in ways that uh, Britain Britain, not so much. Okay, so here's the first point. Reading the Constitution holistically when it comes to rights and the purposes of government, um, and I mean the powers and the purposes of government and rights. So what would be um, a right that I would deduce holistically from the Constitution? I might say, for example, well, the First Amendment says you have a right of freedom of speech and a right of freedom of the press. What about a handwritten letter? It's not the product of a printing press, typically. It's not the product of oral expression like speech. But for the same reasons, we're protecting oral expression and, 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 and the printed word. Of course, we're, we should um, pr- protect um, private letters, too. Um, reading holistically, yes, armies, 
um, and navies, but also air forces and, and marines. Um, on the right side, um, press, speech, but also, of course, letters. It's about expression, political expression more general. Heck, even if there weren't a First Amendment at all, I need to protect political expression because it's central to running an election every two years. It, well, it, it, to, push it, to, to push it just a little far, say sign language. Sign language is, is not oral speech. It's not even anything um, on, on, physical, uh, on a physical platform like, like uh, a letter or uh, uh, press might be. And yet, of course, that's protected by the First Amendment. Obviously. So now we're so one one technique is reading the thing holistically, reading the powers and saying, well, OK, it doesn't mention corporation, but that actually is a very helpful way of of, of defending the nation. And if you don't think a banking corporation is sort of helpful in winning wars, you know, ask the Russians today. And that's actually the argument John Marshall makes in McCulloch versus Maryland, um, building on Hamilton before him, that a, a, a bank, a national bank can be very helpful in winning a war. Uh, just like an army and a navy, armies and navies are mentioned, but not banks. If you're going to do that on the power side, see McCulloch, do that on the right side. It says speech, it says press, but what about sign language? You know, what, what, what about uh, uh, private letters? Absolutely. And this would be true, again, even if there weren't a First Amendment at all. So that's one technique. I'll give you three others. So just before we leave that one, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it seems to me there's two ways you could approach what you were just saying about things like sign language and letters. One is to say, obviously, this is included because of the deep purpose to promote expression and political uh, interchange and so forth. And that, I think, is what you were saying. The other way you could do it is by redefining speech, by saying the word speech actually means this. And that would be more of a textual, uh, sure. but, but it seems to me it's a far more cramped way of doing it. Yeah. And But I think that's an important distinction because there those who seek to, you know, to keep the Constitution literal, we'll try to cram it into that actual yeah. word. You're right. So, so just like Andy, we could, we could talk about, for example, the vertical element of the army. If we're not allowed to have an air force or something, you know, the 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 air division of the the, the army, uh, something like that, the balloon division, or or, or the, the the financial arm of the army, which we call a national bank, or what have you. Okay, but Andy, let me go back to your point though, because. Um, let's take the right to listen or the right to hear. Imagine a law that says everyone can speak as much as they want, but everyone has to wear uh, earphones that block out um, uh, all uh, human speech. Now, the right to speak would not be limited, but the right to listen would be, and that obviously would violate the First Amendment. Uh, and, and, and I don't know how textually you call covering your ears speech. Well, you could, you, you could say, if you, again, and this is Andy's point, it's not merely the freedom to speak, but the freedom of speech, you know. But again, you're right. Does that clearly connote the freedom of, you know, um, hearing or receiving a, a speech as opposed I mean, to engaging in speech? I mean, at some point, words and text kind of blur into the, why we have them. And, and, and so let me, give, let me give you one other example of this holistic thing, and then I'll give you three other um, illustrations. So, so it says you have a right to confront um, witnesses um, against you doesn't say you have a right to confront physical evidence that's introduced against you, you know, but of course you, it says you have a right to compel the production of witnesses in your favor. doesn't say you have the right to compel the production of physical evidence in your favor, but 
What's the point of the whole thing? The point is to have a fair trial so that you can show that you didn't do it, okay? And the specific rights that are mentioned are part of a larger purpose and system. You know, speech and press are part of the system. Armies and navies are part of the system. Confrontation compulsory process are part of the system. So whether we're talking about powers or rights, one idea is read the thing holistically, okay? A second source of unenumerated rights Um, might be history and tradition. Certain things um, have been generally practiced in in America, um, and um, they were so obvious and and they were so unquestioned um, that we never even thought to textualize them because we didn't even imagine that anyone was going to try to take away your right to have a pet dog or to play the fiddle or to wear a hat. And yes, there might be certain situations in which we have to take away your pet dog or something if it's rabid, but there's maybe a presumptive right to do all sorts of things just as a matter of history, tradition, custom. This would be a a Burkean um, um, approach rather than looking at the enumerated rights and and deducing um, uh, unenumerated rights. Yet a third idea um, might be to look at other important documents in the American constitutional experience um, that um, itemize rights in various ways, state constitutions the Declaration of Independence, um, um, and so on. Yet another way, and there are more ways than than these, might be to reflect on iconic American symbols of American identity, like um, the Gettysburg Address or the I Have a Dream speech. These are all part of a larger American um, culture um, and ethos. Um, So there are many different ways of doing unenumerated rights uh, jurisprudence. If we look, for example, at state constitutions and state laws and state practices, and this is why abortion is a little tricky, um, we don't see lots and lots of states prior to Roe versus Wade that actually um, legalized uh, an abortion right nearly so broad as the one um, articulated by the court in Roe versus Wade. By contrast, let's take Griswold, um, which was about contra- use of contraception in the home by married couples, in fact, on the facts in the case. No state other than Connecticut ever made it a crime for a husband and a wife to use contraception in their home. So, so that was a real, the, the Connecticut law at issue was a real outlier, and Justice Harlan especially emphasized that in his opinion. And, and, Justice, and Justice Kennedy has emphasized that in cases like Lawrence versus Texas involving uh, same-sex sexual conduct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what the counting. trend line is. Yeah, count, counting the number of states, either in state constitutions or in state statutes or, or state practices. Going back to Griswold, that is occurring in, the, that was about action occurring in the home, and the word house appears in both the Third and Fourth Amendments. And so just like we talked about speech and press, you know, or confrontation compulsory process, we might ask, well, why did they signal the house out above and beyond all other buildings? Oh, because they were trying to protect the home life within the house. So so now we've already begun to identify, and, and I know we have to move on, um, um, various ways of thinking about unenumerated rights, just a catalog to look at the enumerated ones and to try to sometimes connect the dots or to see the Constitution holistically, to look at other iconic constitutional texts, whether narrowly legal, like state constitutions or the Declaration of Independence, or more broadly um, uh, significant 
um, kind of symbolic constitu- text in our constitutional um, uh, order, or symbolic text like the Gettysburg uh, Address or the I Have a Dream speech. Um, look at just actual practices on the ground um, and traditions, how many states have actually um, tried to regulate things in uh, this way or, or that way. Um, so those are all ways of thinking about unenumerated rights. They're not the only ways. Um, Can I add just one footnote? Because uh, in the previous episode, I feel we had a little back and forth about why conservatives seem to accept Griswold but not Roe. And then you said, well, maybe it's a Fourth Amendment instinct or now you're talking about an outlier um, a principle. And like Griswold talks about the home and uh, talks about invasion of the bedroom uh, uh, that would implicate the Fourth Amendment, talks about married couples, uh, uh, talks about use of contraception. But then in Kerry, the court extends Griswold uh, kind of reflexively to invalidate laws um, involving the distribution or sale of contraception. And, you know, there's nothing home about a pharmacy. There's nothing married about all people over 16 years of age, et cetera. So these things are, are, are they, I understand why it's it, some hard questions need to be asked um, uh, as we try to kind of uh, elaborate on unenumerated rights. And you just now um, put your finger on yet another source of unenumerated rights, which are precedents, which then can sometimes um, uh, grow and expand. So you start with Roe, but now Roe is, I assume you start with Griswold, but now Griswold is a precedent. And then do you apply it to um, unmarried couples in Eisenstadt, to distribution of contraception as opposed to use of it in in carry and the like? Maybe this was already clear in what I said before, but a closely related source of unenumerated rights are implications from the constitutional system as a whole, like democracy requires free political expression. And I would add um, paying close attention to how the constitution was itself adopted. The constitution was adopted in an epic act of free speech, was amended in, in the civil war in ways that presupposed a very robust understanding of Republican government and the like. And those are sources of unenumerated rights as well, reflecting deep on how the Constitution came about, how the amendments came about. And of course, the point you make about going from Griswold to, to Kerry, I mean, uh, it, it's actually a little reminiscent of some of the substantive due process discussion because, you know, in Griswold, you establish a right, or at least you the rights established, but you you, you know, elucidate the right, articulate the right. Well, and then it's accepted. Well, if everyone accepts that's a, that it's a right, obviously you have to be able to distribute contraceptives in order to realize that right. Um, and that's, you know, some of what, what we hear in these other discussions, like, well, okay, this is your right, but how can it be a right, for example, in uh, uh, Gideon versus Wainwright? How can it be a right to have an attorney if you can't afford an attorney? So and, people, and, and, and people might debate that because on the one hand, you could say, ah, just as Vic said, well, of course, if you have a right to speak, you know, other people have to be able to hear you. Uh, and, and, and speech isn't just about engaging spe- in speech, but receiving speech. Um, and you're saying, well, gee, if you have a right to use contraception in your home, you're going to have to get it some way. The flip side, and I'm not endorsing it, but just so you, you see, this is this is what lawyers do every day when we, we argue about precedence is they say, ah, no, the problem with Griswold is it would have been enforced, a ban on the use of contraception by intrusions into the home, which directly implicate Fourth Amendment concerns about um, the sanctity of 
the, the house itself and, and the life within it. Um, but if we simply just prevent you from actually ever even bringing anything into your home, we are not going to have some of those same Fourth Amendment search and seizure issues that arise. That's just the debate about whether you're going to take a case like Griswold and extend it to a case like carry involved, involving distribution um, rather than uh, uh, use itself. But, but, but that, your last point actually drives home that it's, the question is not just whether you can find an unenumerated right. It's what is the precise justification for the enumerated right in question, because that's going to determine exactly where you go from there. How broadly or narrowly you read it. And also once, I, I, just to... Not that I ever get the last word here, but but um, <laughs> once once Griswold, you know, is on the books and people live with it, then you could say, okay, now this is a right that that is is a practice that everyone is engaging in, and so therefore these questions about distribution and so forth become rights not inherently to uh, because emerge at the time that the Constitution is written, but now that we've lived with with this other right. It implies other things in its turn. And one final thing that Marsha Blackburn sort of said is some rights have aged rather well. People really accept them like Griswold. Some there's been a lot of pushback on. And she wanted you to know that 79 percent of of women actually are pushing back on uh, abortion on demand, so to speak. One final point on Andy, on on your uh, observation there. In the same sex marriage context, when um, justices uh, in cases like Windsor and Obergefell um, tried to point out how uh, uh, broadly accepted same-sex marriage was throughout the country. Um, one question that arose is, can you count states that didn't voluntarily choose to have same-sex marriage, but instead had lower federal court rulings invalidating their bans on same-sex marriage? Which column do you put those states in? And it goes to your point about about Griswold and, and living with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my own view of Obergefell is it's best defended uh, not uh, on grounds of custom and tradition and counting, um, but just um, it, on it, just straight up equality grounds, saying the Constitution says basically people are born equal. It doesn't just say they're born equal, black and white. Um, it says they're born equal, and I say they're born equal, male and female, gay and straight. Now, that's, that's a textual argument, Justice Black, uh, uh, Senator Blackburn. You know, again, we're going beyond you know, what she, she was asking, but now we're talking about how you argue about text, how you argue about precedence, how you argue about the Constitution as a whole, um, and, and the American constitutional system. Which brings you back to Roe, which, of course, was the, the topic of Blackburn's uh, questioning and whether Roe does have a potential equal protection justification uh, compared to the liberty autonomy justification that Justice Blackman wrote up. Okay, so that's uh, Senator Blackburn um, with a somewhat uh, blunt introduction to the question of, of enumerated and unenumerated rights. Now we have uh, a clip from Senator Cornyn, who seems to be pursuing a different tack, but I think ultimately comes back to some of the same questions um, although perhaps with a little more subtlety, but not necessarily that much more. So let's listen to, to, to Senator Cornyn. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Judge, I want, want you to do me a favor. Um, will you nerd out with me a little bit? Uh, um, I will try, Senator. And we'll, we'll start with stare decisis. Yes. And I've never figured out why lawyers speak in Latin rather than in English. Uh, when describing these concepts by which judges apply precedent. 
But would you agree with me that um, even under an appropriate stare decisis uh, analysis that Dred Scott and Plessy versus Ferguson were appropriately overruled by the Supreme Court? Well, Senator, um, I've not engaged in the actual analysis, but I think it is well established now um, that the cases um, that overruled uh, Dred Scott and Plessy were um, correctly decided. Yeah, I mean, there, there is the, a means by which the courts can correct their mistakes, correct, by overruling uh, previous decisions? If the various considerations that the Supreme Court has uh, uses to make that determination and are have satisfied. You, have you ever heard a federal judge talk about super-duper president or super-precedent? I have not. I've never seen it either in any opinion. I've heard it here in the uh, Judiciary Committee on a number of occasions when somebody has a favorite case or outcome that they don't want to see the Supreme Court revisit. Um, let me ask a minute. Obviously, your uh, nomination by President Biden is historic, and I congratulate you again, congratulated you previously, and I think it's uh, been long overdue. When Clarence Thomas, the second African-American who was uh, nominated to and confirmed by the Supreme Court, was nominated to the court, did you celebrate that as a historic event? I'm trying to remember where I was at the time. I believe I did, yes. When we're talking about staying in your lane, uh, and I appreciate your responses to a number of the questions, even though I'd love to get your answer to the question, but where you've deferred answering, saying you want to stay in your lane and not be uh, seen as a policymaker, uh, would you agree with me that one of the most important questions under our constitutional form of government and the separation of powers is who decides? In other words, some questions are appropriately decided by judges who are elected, or unelected, excuse me, serve for life, insulated from politics, and other decisions are appropriately within the, um, left up to the legislative branch because they are, we are accountable to the people who can vote for us, they can vote against us, um, if they don't like the policies that we, uh, that we enact in legislation. Would you agree with, that who decides is an important question in terms of determining the appropriate role for both the judiciary and the uh, legislature? As a general matter, I agree. It rarely comes directly like that as an issue. It's, it's, it's usually not a jump ball between, <laughs> um, between I, the I, legislature and the executive I get it. Branch. You don't get a lot of easy, easy questions. Well, um, but well, you, as a general proposition, you won't uh, disagree with me. What I'd say is that the courts are properly tasked with resolving legal questions and cases or controversies right exactly in right. every case and Congress is not similarly constrained we can pass broad policies comprehensive legislation changing policy but 
The difference is, one of the differences is the voters can unelect us if they don't like what we're doing. That is true. I want to ask you, uh, did you study under Lawrence Tribe when you were at Harvard? I did not. Well, as you know, Justice Breyer, your mentor, wrote a little book called Active Liberty. And um, Lawrence Tribe, who uh, was a formerly a law professor at Harvard, wrote a review of that book in the New York Times Review of Books. And the title of it is Politicians in Robes. Are you familiar with that article? I am not. Well, in the article, Professor Tribe accuses Justice Breyer of engaging in what he calls a noble lie. And he said, he talks about the morality of resorting to falsehoods and delusions to conceal, usually from the masses, but sometimes from oneself, the truths whose revelation would wreak havoc or at least do more harm than good. Professor Tribe goes on in criticizing Justice Breyer's book. He says, in his stubborn, stubborn avowal that the court, even with its current far-right supermajority, remains an apolitical body, he perpetuates a lie that is anything but noble. You've talked about staying in your lane, not making policy decisions, not being seen as political. Do you agree with Justice Breyer that, or with Professor Tribe? Senator, um, I believe that judges are not policymakers, that um, we have a constitutional duty to decide only cases and controversies that are presented before us, and within that framework, uh, judges exercise their authority to interpret the law and not make the law. So you would, you would agree with me that judges should not be politicians? Yes. Okay, so that's the first exchange. Now, it might seem like that didn't have much to do with unenumerated rights, but I think that uh, he's kind of laying some groundwork there because he starts off talking about precedent um, and theories about precedent. And I think if you look at all this through um, the, the lens of something like Roe, you know, you know, and you're a conservative, you, you want to first say, okay, we're, precedent is not decisive. And then, we, and then you say, we can't make up new things. And then you say, it's not in the Constitution, and then you're done. So, uh, so I think that's what's, what's going on here, but we'll see about that. Anyway, your comments here. I guess, I, this is Vic, I would uh, uh, just comment that even on the narrow question of whether overturning Dred Scott was correct, uh, she's, uh, Judge Jackson was well prepared to avoid answering that. You'll, you'll notice that she did not say... Uh, yes, it's correct. I agree it's correct. She says it's well established uh, by the court and by others that it, it, it was correct uh, to uh, 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 jettison uh, uh, Plessy or Dred Scott. But was she, Dred she, Scott she, even overruled? I thought that well, the, well, the it, amendments it was actually. The 14th Amendment. Yes, but that's okay, not but, but, but court was, overruling. Was, I think there was Plessy in there as well. Um, and Brown, mm -hmm. of, of course, did overrule Plessy. But, but, but Andy just made a point 
you know, and, and he's a retired ophthalmologist and Judge Jackson is a very distinguished graduate of the Harvard Law School and former Supreme Court clerk and a judge for many years. Um, but Andy actually shows that he's perhaps more conversant with the Constitution's text and history than are many a distinguished lawyer. So Andy says, technically, Dred Scott actually decided several things. Right. Yes. Technically, some of the most important things that Dred Scott decided were actually, in effect, overruled by a constitutional amendment and not by the Supreme Court as such, which is why there's not a famous case overruling Dred Scott the way most people say. It's actually a little more complicated that Brown overruled Plessy. So, so Dred Scott said three things. One of the things it said is that blacks can't be citizens. People, even if they were, they are born free. Their parents were born free. Their grandparents were born free, and and their grandfather indeed fought at Bunker Hill and voted on the on the Constitution, which free blacks did in Massachusetts. Um, even if all that were so, Dred Scott says. A black person, a descendant of the of slaves, a member of this, quote, slave race, which is how Dred Scott framed it, can never be a citizen. And the first sentence of the 14th Amendment says anyone born in the United States is and subject to the jurisdiction thereof is a citizen. Black or white, whether your parents are slaves or not, doesn't matter. You, so that overrules part of Dred Scott. Another thing that Dred Scott said was that only citizens have um, a constitutional rights. And actually, the 14th Amendment very much makes clear that citizens have constitutional rights, but so do persons above and beyond citizens. And the third main thing that Dred Scott said is that Congress can't prohibit slavery in the territories. And to the extent that's been overruled, it's again overruled most of all by an an amendment. Now, in this case, the 13th Amendment prohibiting slavery, not just in the territories, but everywhere. So, Andy, you are on it. You're saying, actually, you know, she could have said and didn't. that, that Dred Scott was basically overruled by we the people um, ourselves in the 13th and 14th Amendments. And that makes it in some ways slightly different than Plessy, which was overruled by a later series of cases. Most importantly, Brown, that Brown technically, she could have said, just said Plessy doesn't apply to education. Plessy was a transportation case. And post-Brown cases actually made obvious that that um, Brown, which moved away from Plessy, actually, in effect, was um, overruling it. Um, as lawyers would say, sub silencio, without quite saying so. And and the final overruling, really, of Plessy versus Ferguson actually occurs in the late 1960s in a case called Loving versus Virginia, also authored by Earl Warren, who authored um, Brown in 1954. She could have said all that. She didn't. Um, Andy, I think you know all of that because this because you've been studying the Constitution and she's been doing her, uh, you know, retirement has been good for you, <laughs> but she's been doing her day job, which the open secret is doesn't necessarily involve day in and day out um, engaging in the deep questions of American constitutional law and uh, a study of American history. And of course, as Vic said, you know, he, he was commenting more on the fact that she didn't. She didn't answer the question, you know, particular or at least. At least she didn't answer. She didn't go in the direction that Senator Cornyn wanted her to go. Um, she just gave a very superficial. And look, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, again, if the if the game is to be confirmed, she won the game. So right. Um, and 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 she didn't say things that different than than I think most 
very well trained, well socialized, um, um, uh, highly competent federal uh, judges uh, uh, who might be considered for the Supreme Court you know, would have done. Uh, I guess the question is, though, does she realize this? I mean, in other words, does she know what we what you just said about about Plessy and Brown is even a little more subtle, but you know, um, but correct. I think what you said, uh, and uh, so do, does she know that we don't know, right? Because she, mo, mo, she said one other thing. Listen, it was relevant, okay. Uh, and and there's nothing wrong with this, but it is revealing. She's a Harvard college graduate. She ends up at the Harvard Law School. She has some choices about what courses to take. She doesn't take Lawrence Tribe, who I would say is the preeminent constitutional scholar at Harvard Law School, especially in um, uh, her era. Um, there's Again, that's not criticism. It's just you know, interesting. Perhaps that wasn't actually for her the be-all and end-all. Barack Obama becomes the first black president of the United States in the same way that she's will be the first uh, female black on the United States Supreme Court. Barack Obama becomes the first black president of the United States because he, at Harvard Law School, chooses to engage closely with Larry Tribe. Larry Tribe hires Obama as Larry Tribe's own research assistant kind of anoints him and other students notice this. And if Larry tribe picks you, Oh, you're very special. People whom Larry tribe has picked include Elena Kagan, um, for, for example, um, or um, a, a friend of uh, Vicks and mine, Kathleen Sullivan, a later Dean of the Stanford law school, another very close colleague of Vicks, Michael Dorf, who, who writes um, uh, law columns in um, Justia as, as does Vic. Um, tribe actually not only picked him, but um, uh, co-authored a, a, a book with him. So when Larry Tribe picks you, everyone at the Harvard Law School pays attention to that. Um, and because everyone at the Harvard Law School paid attention to that, Barack Obama got elected by his fellow students as, at the Harvard Law School on the Harvard Law Review as the first black president of the Harvard Law Review. Time magazine noticed this ran a little piece about it, um, and the literary agent saw that and got in touch with Obama and said, hey, um, would you like to write up your life story? This is interesting to us that you're the first um, black president of Harvard Law Review. And that became Dreams from My Father, which, um, and, and Obama now is, is halfway to the presidency because he's, he's capturing the, the, the national attention, the national spotlight. This is Vic. I just, the only thing I would add to that, though, Akhil, is we don't know uh, whether uh, Larry was teaching when uh, Judge Jackson was a second sure. year. Maybe she, she got assigned a, a con law person in her first year. She had no choice over her first year classes. Uh, we don't know what courses, if any, tribe, tribe was teaching her second, third years. He could have been on sabbatical. She could have been in a clinic that conflicted with. So it's, it's I don't know that we it's know possible. she chose it's not possible. to. Right. But here's what she did. She didn't say... I didn't, and it, you know, and I didn't and, have a chance to. I didn't. I, I, I unfortunately, I did not take uh, right. Professor Trotter. She, she didn't say that. No, again, why volunteer more information? You know, rather than just answer the question in the most. You know, if it's a game of keep away, you know, why tell them more than they're asking? But 
it, it, it is interesting and revealing that she didn't take constitutional law or any course indeed with the most eminent constitutional scholar, I would say, um, at Harvard Law School in, in that era, uh, Lawrence Tribe. Tribe is not particularly popular among Republican senators. So for her to have kind of law Tribe wouldn't have done her any favor. Yeah, I understand. I, I, and, and, and so, again, what, maybe she just doesn't want to volunteer more information than is, is useful. Well, this connects with another th- uh, theme of our podcast, which is uh, mentoring, which we've talked about for a while. And... You know, I think a lot of people might think about law schools as, uh, you know, sort of the paper chase. Like, you know, you you go to class uh, with these very remote, uh, um, you know, in, imposing figures, and you just try to survive it, um, and then and then you're done. Um, but uh, you're talking about, you know, choosing a mentor or actually being chosen uh, by the professor. You use both of those. Uh, phrase phraseologies and of course they're quite different and I know in my, in my son's case when he was at Harvard he absolutely had a mentor that he that he sought out and uh, you know work so for him it wasn't okay I took the class and then I, I the professor liked me and so now I'm able to but rather he sought out the professor for research and then after some success there took his classes uh, and then things because went from there. Because he's your son and you seek people out too. And Andy, we're friends in part because you sought me out. Um, well, and I was lucky enough to have, you know, um, your son uh, when I taught an undergraduate and class. And my daughter. Law, and your daughter. So, so, but you taught your kids to seek out um, uh, uh, professors. And, um, and, uh, and Vic is right. Sometimes it's just luck of the draw. You know, I'm, Vic and I are both so very close to, to Neil Katyal. That was just randomly, uh, in, in a way, he got assigned to me his very first semester of law school, and, and we clicked. Um, um, our, our audience knows about um, Neil's um, brother-in-law, Jeff Rosen, president of the National Constitution Center. Again, to some extent, that was luck of the draw. Um, uh, Jeff was assigned to me randomly his first semester. But uh, I think, though, that, that among our listeners that, that may be attending law school or maybe considering attending law school, this, this might be uh, informative to them. Uh, Vic, what, what's the circ- situation like at your law school? Is, is mentoring, I mean, and you're the dean, is mentoring an important part of your law school? Have you tried to make it more important? Or what's your feeling about, about that? No question that uh, mentoring is, is crucial at, at most law schools. Indeed, I would say uh, at places like Yale and Illinois, that are rather intimate and have very low student-faculty ratios. It's very easy if students try to seek professors out to develop relationships. Uh, as you pointed out, uh, Andy, earlier, uh, doing research for a professor, uh, as, as uh, Michael Dorff did for, for Larry Tribe, uh, is a great way to get to know uh, folks. And uh, it, it, mentoring is, is especially important in two particular postgraduate realms. One is... Uh, getting good clerkships uh, with judges and and or justices down the road. And then if you ever want to be a professor, having uh, people on the faculty uh, uh, vouch for your scholarly bona fides uh, is very important. Okay, so that's a little off track, but I think, you know, very, uh, very interesting for our audience, hopefully. Okay, so back to this uh, colloquy. So that was the first, we've discussed the very first part of the uh, exchange. And then they got into a discussion about precedent. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he mentioned stare decisis. 
And uh, what was your, you know, what was your reaction there? It seemed like he was trying to get her to say something to the effect that we've said on this podcast that the Supreme Court uh, is not the final word. That they, uh, and in fact, they they can even say, yeah, we were wrong. Um, that they can over overturn precedents. Um, did you have any reaction to that uh, exchange? Well, this is Vic. Again, I think you're right. He, the, the mention of this super-duper precedent idea that had come up in previous confirmations did so in the context of Roe. And the question is always whether Roe is some kind of uh, special precedent that is off-limits to reconsideration. And I think he wanted her on record uh, that there is no such thing. Now, again, I don't think that Senator Cornyn believes that Judge uh, and then later Justice Jackson would vote to overturn Roe, but he's trying to score points not just for this nominee and this confirmation, but um, for, for the audience more generally, if and when Roe is overturned in, in the Dobbs case you described earlier in the podcast, Andy. Um, he, wants, he wants, I think, uh, you know, viewers to know that, that um, that's part of the appropriate game that is played at the court. Right. Um, and then he goes into a little bit about whether judges are policymakers, and they, they agreed on, on the notion of cases and controversies. Although I have to admit, I was reminded of something that uh, Akil once said, um, which is, uh, this is not quite the same as judges making law or being legislators, but in terms of having to stay relevant to the actual case, uh, Akil once said, I love dicta. Well, uh, the way I put it is, dicta makes the world go round. <laughs> so, but I think there's a subtle difference there. But you know, what, what do you, what would you, what would you say to that, Akil? Um, that Marbury versus Madison, uh, the granddaddy of uh, 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 judicial review, um, from uh, a as at least as conventionally understood, is filled with all sorts of dicta. But uh, would you say that uh, if, if she had responded along those lines, that that, that uh, Senator Cornyn would have taken issue with that? I mean, we don't know. She, she, listen, the, you're, you are right, Andy. The game is to get confirmed. And mm-hmm. why should she say anything remotely interesting? My game is to get people to listen to the podcast and to tell them interesting things that they might not know about the American constitutional system. So for our listeners, then, what would be the difference between a judge sort of going off topic, which is basically you know, what, you know, what, I guess, one definition of dicta um, versus making, making law or stepping outside what at least the, the two of them agreed was the, pro- whether you agree. No, here's, here's what I would say. I don't want judges to make policy, but I want them to tell me what the law is. Um, and if they're telling me what the law is, um, which is actually a pun on the word jurisdiction. Diction is a speaking, a saying, and juris is law. So jurisdiction is a speaking of law, saying what the law is. If they're telling me what the law is, um, even if they're going beyond the facts of the case, that's dicta. They're, they're uh, telling me, okay, on this case, on these facts, here's what the law would be. Um, but actually, if they go on to say, oh, but if facts were different in this way or that way, you know, this is what the law would say about those other fact patterns. That's dicta. That's fine. That's not policy making. That's not telling me what they think is a good law or a bad law. They're actually just telling me what they think the law is, not just for the facts at hand, but for other facts that may be re- related and important. 
I would add, this is like, I would add one thing. I, I, I agree with what I just said. This, this distinction between a dicta and a holding, which a lot of lawyers and law professors don't fully understand, I, I should say, uh, is interesting when one compares the role of a lower court judge, which is what Judge Jackson has been up until now, and a Supreme Court justice, in the following sense. When you're on the Supreme Court, you are free to overrule even holdings, although the justices feel a little bit more uh, free, uh, uh, unrestrained to jettison or ignore dicta. In other words, they don't, they don't feel that they're even um, uh, uh, having to exercise the ultimate power of reversing a mistake if they just characterize language from a past case that they don't like as dicta. But if you're a lower court judge, um, if something is a holding, you're stuck with it, whereas if you can um, reasonably conceive of it as dicta and not necessary to the outcome of that case that, that you're grappling with, uh, then that frees you up. So uh, lower court judges uh, need to understand the difference uh, in, in, in terms of the power that they have. And is, why is that? I mean, why, why if it's in the opinion, uh, presumably it has the, the backing of a majority of the court, well, or I, does it? I mean, is that the I, difference? I think, that... I think the answer. I think the answer is if something. The conventional answer, at least, would be if something isn't truly essential to the bottom line of a case, then perhaps the judges didn't have to think about it as carefully when they said it, because nothing turned on it. It goes back to why, in general, we don't like judges shooting their mouths off outside the context of cases and controversies, because we trust what judges say much more when uh, they know and we all know that something turns on what it is they're saying. So it's, 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 dicta is important, and as I just said, it, it, you know, it's, it's out there. In most of Marbury's dicta, uh, but we, we think that judges uh, do their best judging when they are identifying the, uh, the essence of the reasoning in deciding the case before them. So, all right, so that's the part one of this. Now here's a somewhat longer exchange um, between the uh, between Senator Cornyn and, and Judge Jackson. Let me talk to you a little bit about some of the decisions that have been made by the Supreme Court over many years, starting perhaps with Dred, Dred Scott, that adopts the substantive due process argument to determine the constitutionality of, uh, of various laws. Perhaps the most recent decision by the Supreme Court that was a dramatic departure from, uh, from previous laws in the states and in the nation was the Oberfell case, which um, dealt with same-sex marriage. In the opinions that were written there, it was noted that here we are 200, at the time, 234 years after the Constitution had been ratified, 135 years since the 14th Amendment had been ratified, that the Supreme Court articulated a, a new fundamental right, which is a right to same-sex marriage. You're familiar with that case, aren't you? I am. At the time, it was noted that 11 states, including the District of Columbia, had, had passed laws sanctioning same-sex marriage. But also at the same time, there were 35 states who put it on the ballot, and 32 of those states decided to maintain the traditional definition of marriage between a man and a woman. 
Do you agree with me that uh, marriage is not simply a governmental institution, it's also a religious institution? Well, Senator, um, marriages are often performed in re religious institutions. Well, when the, when the, you agree with me that many of the, the major religions that I can think of, and they're Christianity, Judaism, Islam, embrace a traditional definition of marriage, correct? I am aware that there are various religious faiths that define marriage in a traditional way. Do you, um, do you see that when the Supreme Court makes a dramatic pronouncement about the invalidity of state marriage laws, that it will inevitably set in conflict um, between those who ascribe to the Supreme Court's edict and those who have a firmly held religious belief that marriage is between a man and a woman? Well, Senator, I, these issues are being litigated, as you know, throughout the courts as people um, raise issues. And so it's, I'm limited in what I, I can say about them. I'm aware that there are cases. Um, no, I'm not asking you to decide a case or predict how you would decide in the future. I'm just asking, isn't it apparent that when the Supreme Court decides that something that is not even in the Constitution is a fundamental right and no state can pass any law that conflicts with the Supreme Court's edict, particularly in an area where people have sincerely held religious beliefs, doesn't that necessarily create a conflict between what people may believe is a matter of their religious doctrine or faith and what the federal government says is the law of the land? Well, Senator, that is the nature of a right, that um, when there is a right, um, it means that there are limitations on regulation, even if uh, people are regulating pursuant to their sincerely held religious beliefs. You agree with marriage is not mentioned in the Constitution, is it? It is not mentioned directly, no. And um, religious freedom and um, is mentioned in the First Amendment explicitly, correct? It is. Do you share my concern that when the court takes on the role of identifying an unenumerated right, in other words, it's not mentioned in the Constitution, and creates a new right, declaring that anything conflicting with that is unconstitutional, that it creates a circumstance where those who may hold traditional beliefs, like something as important as marriage, that they will be um, vilified as unwilling to assent to this new orthodoxy? So, Senator, I understand that concern, and because there are cases that are addressing these sorts of issues, I'm not in a position to comment about either my personal views or whether- I'm not asking, and I'm not asking you to. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, Justice Alito in the, uh, 
in the Oberfeld case wrote, he said, I assume those who cling to the old beliefs will be able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes. But if they repeat those views in public, they will risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such by government, employers, and schools. So the Oberfeld case, we, to nerd out with you again, was, um, was decided under a doctrine known as substantive due process, correct? If memory serves, I, uh, yes, substantive due process, and I think there might have been equal protection concerns and the, and the well. court, the Supreme Court has uh, applied that somehow mis fairly mysteriously by saying it's created by the confluence of the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment to the United States Constitution. But historically, it's been applied in ways that uh, seem to sanction explicit policymaking by the courts. For example, um, it's been suggested that Dred Scott, which treated slaves as chattel property, was a product of substantive due process. Justice Hugo Black has criticized the uh, doctrine of substantive due process as the arbitrary fiat of the man or men in power, or the court declaring a law invalid because it shocked the consciences of at least five members of the court. He went on to say, this use of judicial review thus subverts the liberty of government by the people, overturning laws enacted by legislators, legislatures who are answerable to the electorate rather than a majority of the Supreme Court. Finally, he said, finally, for the purpose of my question, he said the adoption of such a loose, flexible, uncontrolled standard for holding laws unconstitutional, if ever it is finally achieved, will amount to a great unconstitutional shift of power to the courts, which I believe, Justice Black, that is, and am constrained to say will be bad for the courts and worse for the country. Judge Justice Jackson, why isn't substantive due process analysis just another form of judicial policymaking, which you've suggested policymaking is not in your lane, or and you strive to be apolitical, something I, I, I applaud. But why isn't substantive due process just another way for judges to hide their policymaking under the guise of interpreting the Constitution? Well, Senator, the justices have interpreted the due process clause of the 14th Amendment to include a substantive provision, the, the, um, the rights to due process. They have interpreted that to mean not just procedural rights relative to government action, but also the protection of certain uh, personal um, rights related to intimacy and autonomy. They include things like um, the, the right to rear one's children, um, I believe the right to travel, the right to marriage, 
um, interracial marriage, the right uh, to an abortion, the contraception. These treating uh, treating uh, slaves as chattel property. I'm. I don't quite remember the basis for the Dred, Dred Scott opinion, but but I'll trust you that that's... Well, the, the fact is, is it not, that you can use substantive due process to justify basically any result? Well, the court... Whether it's conservative or liberal, libertarian or conservative, whatever you would like to call. It's just a, it's a mode of analysis by the court that allows the court to substitute its opinion for the elected representatives of the people and um, and would you agree? The court has um, identified standards for the determination of rights under the Fourteenth Amendment substantive due process. And who who gives them the right to to do that? If it's not mentioned in the Constitution, where does the right of the court to substitute its views for that of the elected? representatives of the people. Where does that come from? Well, the court has interpreted the 14th Amendment to include this component, um, the unenumerated right to substantive due process. And the court has said that um, that the kinds of things that qualify are implicit in the concept of order, ordered liberty, liberty, excuse me, or deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition. Um, those are standards that identify a narrow set of activities. Well, Judge, Judge, the um, in the Oberfeld case, uh, Justice Roberts, in his dissent, noted that the court invalidated marriage laws of more than half the states and orders the transformation of a social institution that has formed the basis for human society for millennia. So that was the basis for the institution of marriage, is the practice for millennia and the recognition that marriage was between a man and a woman. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not arguing the merits or lack of merits of same-sex marriage. I believe the states and the, elect and the, and the voters can choose what they will, and that's their prerogative, and I think that's legitimate. Okay, so that was lengthy, but uh, I think it was a useful summary. Akil? Okay, so I have about five quick points, and I know Vic will have many more. Um, uh, I preface my remarks by saying I worked with John Cornyn um, on uh, trying to reform the Presidential Succession Act, and, and I like him, um, and he's a former judge, and he's a smart guy, um, but um, I thought a lot of what he said there was a hot mess. Okay, so first, um, let's um, talk about that, the stuff that he talked about, um, um, how um, Obergefell was in violation of people's religious rights. Well, no, if you don't believe in uh, same-sex marriage uh, as a, uh, 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 then don't engage in it, you know, and, and, and you, and your belief can be rooted in religion or um, philosophy or um, uh, uh, pure reason or, um, or, or superstition. But, you know, if, if you don't want to marry uh, someone of the same uh, sex, uh, don't, and, and we don't force that. 
And he says, well, but if they're same-sex marriage, then people who don't believe in it, you know, are going to be treated as bigots. And he quotes my friend Sam Alito, and Sam is uh, Alito is my friend, and that analytically has nothing to do with um, the legality of the thing. Um, I can um, whether same-sex marriage is legal or illegal, I can think that people who oppose it are bigots. I'm allowed to. Um, so, so that was a hot mess. And then when he actually tries to inv- um, t- talk about Dred Scott twice, he says something that's actually um, kind of silly. He says, Dred Scott said slavery um, you know, is, is, is about chattel. Well, yes, and, but, but Dred Scott didn't say that. That's what slavery is, and, and slavery preexisted Dred Scott. Dred Scott didn't create slavery. With all due respect, Senator Cornyn, Dred Scott was wrong, not because it equated um, slavery with chattel property. That's the definition of slavery. Dred Scott was wrong because it said all sorts of stupid things about free blacks, about the rights of citizens versus uh, persons, and said Congress couldn't prohibit slavery in the territories. That's what was wrong with Dred Scott. So, man, you really don't understand a central case. And she didn't correct him on all that. And she said, well, Senator, I haven't read Dred Scott recently or something like that. Now, again, it's not in her interest to actually school him the way I just did. Um, But here's the unvarnished truth. Lots of really smart lawyers and good judges um, actually don't know anything about Dred Scott. They weren't taught very much about Dred Scott in law school, and it's not something that comes up day in and day out um, in in their courtrooms. And um, so finally... On Obergefell, she did say, I think correctly, oh, I think there was an equal protection idea there along with substantive due process. Um, she didn't elaborate on it. Again, it's not in her interest perhaps to elaborate on it, but I hope for the show notes we will put up um, a piece that I wrote defending the Obergefell decision. I think I, it was entitled something like what the Supreme Court should have said and almost did in the same-sex marriage case. And the basic idea is that um, um, people should be allowed, uh, that, that the equality claw, uh, provisions of the Constitution, and, and which are related to the first sentence of the 14th Amendment, say that everyone in America, if you're born an American citizen, you're born um, um, uh, equal to all other American citizens. We're all born free and equal. We're all created equal. That is, we're uh, born equal if we're born male or female or if we're born black or white, or if we're born gay or straight. And if um, whites can marry, blacks can marry. Um, And if whites can marry um, whites, blacks can marry whites. (laughs) Even though that that broke with all sorts of traditions, Senator Cornyn, that's the Loving versus Virginia case. And if women can marry men, why can't, you know, uh, women marry women? Um, Or men um, uh, marry men, because... Um, if we're born equal, um, male or female, gay or straight, uh, black or white, if, if straights can marry, why can't gays marry? That's actually a root idea. It's not substantive due process. It's not based on counting states or tradition. It's based on a, a quality idea that might be in tension with tradition. 
as interracial marriage was in tension with tradition, as actually an end of Jim Crow in Brown versus Board of Education was in tension with a certain tradition. So there are at least two different ways of thinking about um, rights. One is a substantive due process way, fundamental rights way. Another is um, based on on tradition and, and ordered liberty. And another way is an equality way. She, she mentioned equality, which is very good, And again, she may not want to get into a whole seminar with him. Robert Bork did that, and it didn't end well. Um, But those are just a a few thoughts about um, that exchange with Cornyn, about um, uh, Dred Scott and religion and same-sex marriage inequality. I want to get to to Vic on this as well, but I have a couple of questions for you about this, uh, some of the things you just said. So um, marriage... um, you're basing some some of this argument on the notion that uh, that we have equal protection under the Fourteenth Amendment, and therefore you need equal protection when it comes to marriage. Mm-hmm. But that would mostly be the case uh, for the purposes of a constitutional argument if marriage were a fundamental right, correct? Or at least a, either either an enumerated Actually, right. You, you, no, or, in, in my view, even if, if, it, if it were n- nothing at all, in something that, that no one has a right to. But if whites can have access to X, whatever X is, blacks should be able to have equal access to X. And and if a white person can can marry or schmarry or or bury or you know you know dairy um um uh, a, a, a white person why shouldn't a black person have the same right to marry mm-hmm. or dairy or fairy or, or whatever so so i actually didn't need to rely particularly on marriage as a fundamental right although the landmark case of loving versus virginia which is the case that drives the nail into the coffin of plessy versus ferguson and overrules plessy in fact, was based on both a fundamental right to marry idea uh, rooted in substantive due process ideology and uh, an equal protection idea. Because you, because she did take take them a moment to identify a number of things. She said travel and you know, some other things that she felt were, you know, were fundamental and had been deemed fundamental. And, and she mentioned abortion <laughs> in, yes, in that she did. list. Yes, she did. But um, so really, so we've got different categories here, right? And and we've got you know, enumerated rights, and then we have unenumerated rights and fundamental mm-hmm. rights, which may be in the category perhaps of unenumerated rights. Um, and you're saying that none of that really matters when you're talking about equal protection. Because, well, but, e- e- equality is fundamental and enumerated. But I think we'll part- stop. So, so when, when, when he says, where does it come from in the Constitution? I said, read the Constitution. I think part of the problem here is this is the death of the Privileges and Immunities Clause in, in the 14th Amendment. That's part of it. But, but he also says, you know, you're saying this 234, 330 years after the founding and 100 years after the Reconstruction. And, and you could have said, again, if you were trying to school him, you know, we got rid of Jim Crow 200 years, you know, 150 years after the Constitution and 100 years after the Civil War. But, but darn it. You know, the Constitution really did say equal, and darn it, Jim Crow really wasn't equal. The problem is that we wait, you know, why did we wait so long? Because the Constitution says what the Constitution says, and it says equal. And But again, it's not necessarily in her interest to say any of that. Well, he's trying to use Obergefell. He picked a bad case to, to make his point. 
he's trying to say that um, that that all sorts of things are being made up, that all sorts of rights are being made up, and why shouldn't the state, the people of the individual states, get to get to say for themselves? And he picked the bad case because it's uh, because that because it's not a substantive due process case entirely. Um, right. But if we if we you know put aside the fact that he picked a bad case, they still didn't really have it out on on this. Uh, on this notion that yes, there are unenumerated rights. Right. Well, this is Vic. They did um, a, a bit, and, and and let me get to that in one moment. So I have just three quick things. First of all, I completely agree with Akhil about uh, the uh, irrelevance of religion in this debate over the legality of uh, uh, of uh, laws that that um, define uh, legal marriage only in terms of a man and a woman. I think this is, you know, a political problem. It's a legal problem, um, but it, it, this has nothing to do with religion. No one is telling religious personnel they're going to have to perform marriages they don't want. No one's telling individuals. And, and if Justice Alito says, well, people are going to think worse of me if I criticize same-sex marriage, well, that's speech is not free in the sense that there are no social consequences. You have a right to criticize it, but, but the, the, the conflation of religion and civil marriage is causing a lot of problems uh, both politically and, and uh, uh, constitutionally. Second thing, though, Andy, on this point about unenumerated rights, she did at one point say, look, the court has found in the 14th Amendment's due process clause a substantive component. She at one time referred to it as a provision, which is similar to the substantive due process clause that sets right. that off, apparently. Um, but, but putting aside provision, she said component at one point. And... So now the question then really comes, okay, is it better to talk about it in terms of Ninth Amendment unenumerated rights or an unenumerated um, a substantive component in the 14th Amendment? Maybe that's a little harder textually since substance and process are, are oppositional and, and the words of the 14th Amendment speak in terms of process. So maybe it's better to talk about it in terms of the Ninth Amendment. But she did come back to one of the, the, the methodologies that you identified earlier this hour uh, about how you find Ninth Amendment rights, and that's history and tradition. And, and she talked about things being uh, uh, rooted in, in traditions and implicit in the concept of order of liberty. So there was some discussion of that on the merits. The, the third and final point I want to make, Andy, it doubles back to your questions earlier about dicta and holdings, and, and, and this is nerding out the way Cornyn might want to. Technically, one could read Obergefell with its language about the fundamental right to marry, and certainly there's a lot of fundamental rights autonomy language in Obergefell, and the language about equal protection and equality, you could read those as alternative holdings that the court relied on both of these rationales, which makes neither one of them essential. So you could say, well, the stuff about autonomy and, and liberty was not essential because there was another basis on which the court independently relied and, uh, and she could have said that you can justify Obergefell entirely on that basis if, if you wanted to. Again, whether she gains anything by engaging any of this nuance is a whole other matter. Well, and it matters which, you know, th- that these are, which of these rationales are valid, if, hopefully both of them, or, but because this is the point of his question, you know, is that, um, I mean, if, if there is a... And I, know, I don't know if both of them are, you see, because he's... And right, and Vic is right that if it's just substantive due process, it's hard to get there by pointing to 
deeply rooted in history it's pretty recent and it's hard to say there's a consensus when it's only a handful of states and when cornyn says most of the states actually have voted against the thing or to the extent that they haven't vic says they haven't in part because judges uh, um and um uh, sometimes force them um in in various states state judges to um recognize same-sex marriage but that really wasn't that a free choice of the people of the state it might be argued Okay. So I think you, you can see why the discussion that we had earlier about the various ways that one can determine unenumerated rights was, was important, even though this perhaps uh, wasn't the greatest example of it. So, all right. So just from these, these three little quotes, um, we actually wound up with a, a pretty uh, wide-ranging discussion of rights, unenumerated right. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot there. And you might say, well, this is how many weeks now talking about the confirmation hearings? But in fact, uh, I think it's just, it's grist for the mill, and there's actually still a little more grist there, um, which we can uh, we can talk about next week. I'd like to talk about, um, first of all, I'd like to show the contrasting styles of of uh, Josh Hawley and Cory Booker that we've been teasing for a while. And I'd like to, to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the timing of the, nomina- of the nomination and uh, the timing of the commission and this sort of thing and some of the issues that are raised there. So, so now this might seem really esoteric, but I promise you, audience, it's, uh, it's interesting. So uh, back with that next week. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs>